Hello, I'm Kimberly Dondo, Digital Content Manager, and welcome to In Conversation With, the podcast series that delves into the world of financial services and brings you face-to-face with some of the most notable figures in the industry. Listen as we discuss topics that are currently facing the industry and hear from visionary CEOs to disruptive innovators as we bring you a diverse array of voices and perspectives. We'll explore the challenges they faced, the lessons they've learned, and the insights they have to share about the ever-evolving landscape of financial services. Hello and welcome to In Conversation With. I'm Kimberly Dondo, Digital Content Manager. And in today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Louis Williams, Head of Behavioral Insights and Psychology at Dynamic Planner. Hi, Louis. Thank you for joining me. No problem. Thank you for inviting me. Um, I don't know if you want me to call you doctor the whole time. But... No, no, not at all. No, Louis is fine. Please. Okay, <laughs> perfect. So could you give us a bit more of a background into yourself and how you got started in financial services? Yeah, sure. So, yeah, um, my background is more in experimental psychology. So I studied psychology um, at undergrad level and then I went through to completing my PhD. Um, and I was involved in lots of different research, um, mainly doing using eye tracking uh, measurements, actually techniques to look at how people look at different information, look at artworks, look at graphs. Um, and after, you know, being at university and teaching uh, for a couple of years, I then um, found this project between Dynamic Planner, where I work now, and I'm yeah, the head of psychology, mm-hmm. um, and the University of, of Reading, where I also work at the moment. I have a visiting uh, fellowship there. Um, and this project was um, for us to try to see how we can, you know, create some new tools and measurements to understand more about clients and their their behaviours and their emotions and their personalities. So, um, yeah, I, I decided to to go for it. It was a two year kind of postdoc position, mm-hmm. and uh, after completing that, then yeah, I I joined Dynamic Planner um, permanently. So yeah, I'm now yeah. the head of psychology there. Yeah, fantastic. And this area is to, very interesting to me. So I guess my first question to you would be, how does behavioral psychology play a role in shaping clients' financial decisions? Yeah. So I, I mean. Many fields in in psychology is very relevant when we think about our industry, and uh, mm-hmm. particularly, yeah, when you think about clients making decisions. Not not only clients, just general, you know, financial decisions we may make in in, in the supermarket. Um, psychology mm-hmm. really has a, a strong impact, um, and I think if we think more about kind of behavioral and cognitive psychology. One of the issues is that, you know, nowadays there's so many options out there um, for us to to purchase so much information um, and we have limited time to make decisions. So all of this information and and all of the sources of information, you know, families and friends telling you something, your advisor, social media, um, Mm. that we are humans. You know, we don't have the capacity to take all of this information and always make the best choice, the most optimal choice. And so uh, that is one of the issues and one of how theories in psychology really explains kind of this decision making process is that because of this, we just have to sometimes simplify it and we just have to use different strategies, different heuristics, we call them. Mm-hmm. Um, so, it, yeah, for example, you know, if you're in the supermarket and you only have two items to choose from, you might decide to look at all of that information that you can compare, you know, the price, the calories, the ingredients, 
But suddenly if there's lots of items and you've got two minutes before you, you can leave or you need to leave, then suddenly you might just base your decision on the on the price. Mm-hmm. So your your decision making process can really change. And that obviously has impact on your financial decisions and what, what, what you choose and how you feel after you've made that choice. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, psychology in, in, in that sense is is yeah really, really important for us to understand how it works, because those decisions and those shortcuts is what leads to a lot of the biases that we talk about. Mm. So these errors that we make, these cognitive errors, we make them because we're trying to, you know, to reduce the decision-making process into more of a simplified experience. And so, um, yeah, that's 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 how psychology is really relevant for our clients and for all of us on a on a day-to-day life. Yeah. And picking up on that point that you made about biases, what are some that are quite common that financial advisors can be or should be made aware of? Yeah. So, um, yeah, there are obviously yeah many out there that we always talk about. I think in in terms of today's society, what people are probably thinking about most, you know, with the cost of living crisis and, um, you know, interest rates, mortgage rates, I think. Uh, the availability bias is is one of the important ones for advisors to think about. So this is all about how I may base my decisions on information that comes to my mind quickly or comes to yeah. my mind easily. Um, and so again, this might happen a lot, you know, in the supermarket situation where I pick up a product and the price shocks me, and it shocks me because I remember what it was last week, something that I recently purchased, or I purchase, you know, every week, mm-hmm. and because it's suddenly gone up a pound or, or, or so, this then influences my decision, it influences my views, my general views on on inflation and 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 on the state of of the economy. So that's quite an interesting and I think important bias for advisors to to think about, and. Um, Availability bias relates quite nicely to recency bias, which is where Mm. because of what's happening now or recently, I think that's also what's going to happen in the future. So I may not want to make decisions about my mortgage and things because or or because of what I've seen in the markets, because I have a feeling this is also going to be the same, you know, in 10 years, 20 years time. And so because of what's happening right now, it affects what I may think about uh, that may happen in, in the future. So I think those are two that. Yeah, pretty important in terms of um, cost of living crisis, in terms of what advisors could think about today, um, which also could link nicely to um, the anchoring bias as well, where Mm -hmm. because there might be a value um, or some pre-existing information that I'm, I'm fixated on, I might use that and that might influence my, my views and my decisions when the next thing happens. So for example, my, um, portfolio value last year when I you know discussed with my advisor had a meeting with my advisor I might be fixated on that value that when I see it again this year I'm anchored to that that it might affect how I feel um my optimism about the future so yeah I think those biases are quite relevant to think about yeah today yeah I it's so interesting to me how all of those things kind of tie in together and you've used some examples there that um can kind of bring more light to those biases but can you give any other examples of how applying behavioral insights can lead to a better outcome for clients yes um yeah so 
if we take that anchoring bias, for example, so I mentioned that I used to do a lot of research, eye tracking research before um, I joined Diamond. Yeah. I still am doing it actually at the moment. <laughs> um, so one of the studies we ran, it was actually with um, a meteorology department. So nothing to do with uh, financial advice, but we were showing forecasts to participants. So okay. um, yeah, weather forecasts. And what mm-hmm. we found is when we were tracking how people were looking at these forecasts, we found actually that when we when a forecast had a median line um showing you know what to plan for the people mm-hmm. were actually fixating a lot to this line even when the questions we asked them were not very relevant to to using that median line so much so as as if people were anchoring to this this median line even though they didn't need to um and when we removed that line and showed them exact same forecast you can see that they you know, they went around the graph a lot more. They um, tried to look at the y-axis and the spread of the eye movements was a lot greater because they no longer had that. And so practically one thing that we've now, um, that was something we uh, published recently. And now we've actually mm-hmm. applied that to what we do in Dynamic Planner, where okay. our cash flow forecast, mm-hmm. where it shows the median line, it shows the 25th and the uh, uh, and the, the percentiles, the fifth, sorry, and the 95th percentiles, um, we also now have a button where you can suddenly show all of the runs that go beneath that. So the client can actually really see the volatility, the ups and downs, and they're not necessarily going to anchor only to that median line. And mm. you can then also have to share the story of, you know, although you may end up somewhere there, it may not be such a nice path and a nice journey that it may look like um, when you look at that median line. So I think this type of um techniques using these types of um, experiments and and uh, psychological um, techniques we can then apply them and apply the, the the results and the findings into our industry even though it's this study was nothing to do with, with financial advice we can still learn from the from the this research yeah that's so interesting to me that something as small as a median line could kind of yeah. draw someone's attention, but I can see how that could happen. And making those small changes can probably be a massive benefit for advisors being trying to explain things to their clients. Um, so yeah, that's very interesting. Yeah. Especially if people are not experts as well. So mm. they don't know about, you know, they don't understand graphs very well. They don't know about the the, the numbers that are, are beneath that. So they might just re- rely on it on parts of the graph that feel familiar to them. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's important. Yeah. And how can financial advisors effectively communicate um, with their clients to kind of um, address any of their behavioral bi- biases? Yes. Uh, so, you know, something that's very difficult because as much as we know about the, uh, the behavioral biases that exist, we can still fall into these traps. Mm-hmm. You know, even though I I can list 10 off now, that doesn't mean I, I, I'm, you know, I'm someone who's who doesn't fall into that myself. And so yeah. we can educate clients. I think we can tell them more about the biases, but I think mm-hmm. we should also um use approaches which allows them to maybe experience some of the investment journey and make decisions and maybe through like a gamified type of approach and when Mm. they do that and when um, we can notify them on some of the biases they may have you know uh, um, experienced or or how they may have behaved so for example they may have ended up following how another individual um, you know had had reacted during Mm -hmm. the the game what we shouldn't do is use that behavior and then 
assume that is how the client's going to act in in reality we, we shouldn't mm-hmm. necessarily do that but i think that can give us a nice way for the client to go through different um you know periods of volatility volatility and things and go through uh these experiences and and understand what they did and why it maybe wasn't the the best um you know action that they could have taken during that time so i think that could be a, a useful way for for advisors to educate clients more about behavioral biases yeah and also on top of that right now we're at a point where there's volatility and market volatility a lot and mm-hmm. um what strategies would you you know impart to advisors to help their clients stay disciplined and not listen to the noise and mm-hmm. give in to any trepidation they might have when it comes to market vo- volatility yeah so we did some research into this actually to see what factors were really impacting and influencing people uh, and their reactions during market volatility. Mm-hmm. And so it was interesting because we found that there were kind of four main factors and kind of characteristics that influenced how people reacted. Mm-hmm. And two of the most important ones was someone's financial self-efficacy. So this is your actual confidence that you have in your abilities to manage your finances. Mm. And the second one was your resilience, not only your resilience in terms of you know having knowledge and and resources and a support network around you to help you but also having the emotional resilience to bounce back from difficult periods to adapt to be more optimistic and so what what we find is that if if clients and advi- if advisors are able to educate clients and help them build their confidence mm. in their abilities to manage their funds help them build their resilience that when they do face these periods they're not going to be necessarily phased by this. They're not going to be panicking. And actually, I, I had a number of interviews during COVID um, with advisors, and many of them said that um, because they had started to communicate with clients way before 2020, back in you know 2018 or, or prior to that, that communicate more about um, volatility and 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 and. Um, what they found is that when it then happened, when it then occurred and they went through these difficult experiences, they they expected it and they were fine and they weren't panicking. So mm. I think being able to prepare people and, and um, build their resilience and confidence is something advisors um, should do. And obviously they can do that through, through many ways, through kind of having conversations about letting go of certainty and focusing on what they can control and things like that, as well as more practical ways like... Um, you know, listing things that are like anxious behaviors that they may that they may actually engage in and listing them mm-hmm. and you know reflecting on, on on those things and reflecting when things went well in the past and and what maybe you did um that wasn't so useful and what you could do next time. I think taking time out and having those conversations or even you know not having conversations with clients sometimes, not making them make decisions because they're emotionally charged and they're maybe not at the right don't have the right um, frame of mind to make a decision right now. So, yeah, I think advisors could think about, yeah, when they have conversations, how they have them and really, yeah, help them build their confidence and resilience ultimately to to deal with those situations. Yeah, I think it's a a lot about understanding your client's behaviours and any anxieties that they may carry. So can you go a little bit more into depth about how understanding clients' behavioral tendencies can help advisors kind of tailor their investment recommendations? Yeah, so um, 
obviously through Dynamic Planner and what we do, part of our uh, system is to profile clients, particularly looking at their attitudes to risk and their sustain sustainability preferences. Um, and now we're adding in vulnerability um, assessments as well. And so if we think about the attitude to risk questionnaire, a lot of those behavioral um, elements are kind of embedded within some of our, our questions, our psychometric items. And so we're trying to allow the advisor to get some insight into some of these uh, characteristics, as I, as I mentioned, into someone's emotions towards investing, into their abilities to tolerate the uncertainty and, and volatility. And so if advisors are able to then take that information and we're able to break it down in a way that they can understand um, how their client may behave or their attitudes, um, then that can enable them to really um, help them to make their recommendations to maybe create different target markets as well, where they mm -hmm. can think about the different demographics, think about the, the risk profiles and sustainability preferences, and then think about the most suitable recommendations for those clients. So I think um, through the software like we we, we provide um, and through the process and having a structured process that advisors then can, they can use this information about how their clients may behave and use it to, to inform um, yeah, the, the 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 solutions that that they recommend. Mm -hmm. And I've recently become kind of interested in cognitive dissonance and okay. yeah. what role it can play, especially for clients' financial choices. Mm -hmm. Um, so what is that role, and how can advisors navigate it? Yeah. So yeah, obviously, if we think about it as being kind of this battle between how our attitudes and how we actually end up behaving if we if, if we see it and we we think about an example in our industry so um you know clients wanting to save for the future yes and that's their attitude that's their 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 desire that's why they that, came to you yeah <laughs> but then their behavior goes contrary to this in a way that when they suddenly have some additional cash that they then spend it and then they ultimately regret that they've spent it and then mm. there's this discomfort this feeling um as a result of you know this cognitive dissonance so I, I think one of the problems that we that we have and why we may feel this way is that um we focus maybe too much on on our attitude and so when we think about how we behave our views and our attitudes and our beliefs is, is, is only plays one uh, is is, a, is only plays one part of you know that story and how we intend to behave and how we then actually behave, because we're also influenced by others around us by what mm -hmm. others are doing in the moment mm -hmm. how our others views are on investing and, and saving, but ultimately we are also um, strongly affected by our own beliefs and our abilities to change our behavior mm. and so in the same invest in the same if you think about someone wanting to quit smoking for example as much mm. as they have this attitude that they want to quit and their families and friends are suggesting it's best for their health if they don't actually believe in their own abilities to change mm -hmm. then it's very difficult to change your behavior and then you're going to have this this dissonance where you're acting away acting in a way that you don't really feel like you should be um and i think that's the same with investing it's the same when we think about sustainability as well that we might have views and attitudes but then 
there's these trade-offs we have to think about potentially in the opportunities that we have in the investment opportunities we have in our returns potentially and so again um, that's why we have these questionnaires that's why we have questions to look at these trade-offs to to make people think a bit more about um, their attitudes about how they want how they believe companies should behave um, and whether that behavior you know reflects their own beliefs and their own values if, if that's important to them um so yeah in terms of advisors how can they then help clients navigate this i think it's about making that if we think about investing and saving for the future it's making that become more real is connecting the client to their future selves more to encourage them to to reduce what we call um this psychological distance mm. so the more that i think um, especially for younger generations, you know, the more that I think if I act like that, it may today, it may help future generations or it may help other people in different countries or people who are not really like me, the less I'm likely to to act today. Um, mm. So I need to be able to reduce that distance. And there are ways that, um, you know, researchers look at reducing it by um for example, writing letters to yourself, visualizing your future self, even even using images um, where you, you you know the apps where you can kind of um, yeah, change your age and, age and, and, and up. yeah, so you can look at that and you know spend some time reflecting and visualizing your future self. There's also some um, some uh, apps that have been designed to in, you know encourage people and gamification to encourage people to to save and and um, seeing how that that actually has a significant impact on how people how much people do save in the future so i think yeah advisors part of it could be getting clients to actively think more about their future part mm-hmm. could be you know learning that when they did have this discomfort and when they did act in a way that was contrary to maybe their attitudes that they should learn from that and mm-hmm. and take time to reflect on that and realize that you know that you make mistakes we all may make mistakes um but we can you know, next time we we can change that. Next time when we do have some extra cash, we can change that. So it's maybe is more aligned, aligned with our uh, how we want to behave, how we intend to behave. And and as I mentioned, the the confidence part, the self efficacy part in my abilities, like believing that I can act in this way, that's something we really also need to help clients build up. Yeah, as well. Yeah. Um. That makes me think of something that I saw recently. Um. And I thought about it personally, and then it just kind of made me feel like, oh, my God, I'm never going to reach that goal. And it was an article for uh, from The Spectator, which basically stated that millennials um, would need to save three million dollars. So this was based in the US, I assume, but I don't think it's that far off people who are in Europe or anywhere else in the world, but they need to save three million dollars to live comfortably in their elderly years or like when they retire and seeing that number I have to say just made me think um well that's unattainable so what's the what what's the point basically is that something that advisors probably also have to tackle with how how do you tackle it where you can see a number like that that seems so unattainable and make it more realistic yeah exactly uh, yeah and i think that's potentially why um you know the as you said the the younger generations may there may be this advice gap with younger generations or with, with certain um groups of of uh, yeah the popular the uk population who 
know that they can't achieve that so maybe you know they don't even seek advice and 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 as i mentioned before people who who have more knowledge who have more confidence they're the ones who actually what we find actually go to 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 financial advisors in the first place Mm but you find those who maybe need it don't necessarily go and so yeah i think advisors as I, as I mentioned, having using cash flow tools, for example, mm-hmm. could be an uh, I think is a good way on how they can you know you can put in your goals, you can put in your objectives, you can put in when you may retire, and you can get a better visualization of of what that may look like. So it doesn't potentially look so scary and and unachievable, um, mm-hmm. especially you know when you're at a younger age. Um, but yeah, obviously, I think it's it's a difficult one to tackle because. That's what prevents people maybe taking even reaching out to an advisor in the first place. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think there are ways in which we probably need to think about how we work with all, all uh, generations and all all, all clients. Um, yeah, to help with that. Yeah. Yeah, cutting out the noise. I think now I'm just <laughs> going to block out certain <laughs> certain headlines that I might see. Um, so on top of that. I'm sure that to even have conversations where um, you talk about any behavioral tendencies that your clients might have or any cognitive cognitive dissonance they might have, um, you have to build trust. So build trust in a rapport. So what tips could you provide that will help kind of build that rapport and that trust where a client can come and say, this is what I keep doing, or I don't know why I have so much anxiety when it comes to this particular topic, when it comes to their finances. Yeah. I mean, yeah, trust is is such a big factor. Um, You know, research shows that trust is more important to clients above the advisor's expertise above the 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 fees of of financial advice so being able to understand you know how you can develop that trust that relationship that rapport with the clients is 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 essential and so there are a few models out there um kind of psychology models looking at building trust and most of them kind of have the same underlying factors concepts within them and that is to you know establish your credit credibility demonstrate that you know it is something that is in, uh, you, you know, you are reaching out to an advisor is some a useful step for you, and that actually they have the expertise to help you in this situation. Um, mm-hmm. But at the same time, you need to not be too much too focused on yourself and and frame the goal in a way that is completely about your client. That you know you're going to create a plan together, explain that goal, explain it in a way that is understandable for them, because everyone has a different way of learning everyone has a different type of style of of how they prefer to communicate so getting them to engage as well and be part of designing those goals and those objectives is is really important to help them trust that you're you're doing this for their for their benefit um Mm -hmm. and obviously at the same point in time giving them evidence to show that that you know how you've done it for others maybe or through whether that's through stories or whether that's through numbers through graphs and um being able to share with them and provide evidence that this is something that's important and will benefit them um it can help build that and ultimately the most important part as we mentioned is understanding this um emotional connection and having this emotional intelligence to be able to empathize with clients wherever they may be um during the investment journey what may have happened to be able to um, use your own emotions to kind of 
um, impact how they may be feeling or, and be able to help them regulate their emotions when, when, mm. they're, when they're struggling. So I think that we know that this role is um, you have to have very good interpersonal skills and be able to empathize with clients. So I think focusing a lot on that and build, and working on improving your emotional intelligence, you know, how you how you can perceive emotions in others, how you understand emotions and the complexity between them and um, taking time out to reflect when you do have conversations with clients mm. um, that maybe don't go so well or, or that do and reflect and say, you know, what did I do well this time? Why was the client feeling that way? What was kind of contributing to their emotions and, and mine and then you know helping that and using that and that will help you build your relationship and 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 your trust and give client help clients to trust you more um and i think that that relates a lot to one of the um so there's a there's uh these principles by cialdini he mentioned that there's kind of these principles that we can use to influence people and to kind of persuade them and i think mm-hmm. um that one of those that's relevant to to what I've just been sharing is reciprocity. So the more that I give, the more that I seem interested in you and want to know your objectives and know your goals, the more you're also going to share and the more we're going to build that trust. And the the example that I see this work working well with is um, a GP and, and, and their patient. So the GP wants to know, you know, exactly what is, where's your pain coming from? Why is it Mm. happening? How long has this been happening for? Have any of your other family members, do they feel, how do they feel about this? The more that I'm going to feel actually, you know, they do want to know my issue. They do want to help me. They are concerned about my welfare. And so I'm going to share more. And it's exactly the same I feel with an advisor and a client, the more you get to know them, want to know, you know, their perception of money, their background, their culture, mm. how how this has all influenced their um, their views on money, the more they're going to share with you and the more that relationship is going to grow and, and grow. Yeah, I've been very interested uh, in terms of emotional intelligence and trying to build on my own emotional intelligence, because mm. I feel like it's a very important thing to understand especially my own reactions when it comes to not just like my personal life but when it comes to my spending habits and mm. my spending a little bit more because I feel like I had a bad day and I deserve a treat or something yeah it's yeah. just being able to catch myself and be like oh that's not going along with my long-term goals so stop mm. it Kim don't do that um but, but yeah, it's I difficult can... right when you're in the situation it's difficult it is to be able it's to very hard to catch yourself <laughs> Yeah, especially because the other part, like it feels like there's two parts of my brain. There's another part of my brain that's saying, you know, save for your future. Think about what you want to do next year or in five years, 10 years. And then there's the other part that says, but you've had a really hard day and you still deserve this. This is only just this little amount. Don't worry about it. You know, yeah. Um, and I, yeah, and I think as I mean, I think this just having this conversation and being mindful of that is what's also very important that you mm. then are able to reflect and then next time you know you might do something different or you might instead realize that uh, you know i i shouldn't be so dissatisfied after i've made my decision i shouldn't regret it um you know because of what happened last time and mm-hmm. yeah regret aversion actually is one another very important bias that i think because we may fear the consequences of what of our mm. actions what we may do and we may just end up not making a decision at all. We lose all of that motivation. Um, you know, something similar with me. I, I've been I've been looking at spending some money on a, on a new instrument, and you know, I'm mm-hmm. looking at all of these options out there. Now I'm 
just looked at so many choices, so many options. It still happens that, you know, I'm now less motivated to maybe even make a choice because I fear making the wrong choice. Yeah. And so um, it's it's a difficult one. But and what that the problem that can lead to, and I hope it do- doesn't lead to with me, is that <laughs> it's inertia where we just don't do it. We just don't even yeah. make a decision. We just decide not to do it. Um, and obviously this can happen with clients. And by not by deciding not to make a decision, we're still making a, a decision. And this will still have an impact on our investments on how we save for the future so yeah i think it's a, str- a big struggle is regret and having this fear of regret anticipating this regret because of the decision we're, we're about to make yeah and there's so many different regrets you could have about any choice you make so yeah it's a it's a whole rabbit hole you could fall down um but you touched on cultural differences um or yeah. how culture can affect you know the way you spend your money um so can you go a little bit more into depth about um how cultural differences can influence behavioral biases and um how advisors should adapt their approach yeah so yeah it's an interesting one because obviously we should think about different cultures and how different people may have different perspectives but at, mm-hmm. at the same time we should look at everyone at an individual level as well yeah um, otherwise we have stereotypes and we just assume you know because someone is from this background they may be more risk averse for example and mm. we, we've we've done some recent research looking at across europe looking at people's um attitudes to risk and their sustainability views and you know we find for example people in spain tend to be a bit more risk averse than people in the uk but at mm-hmm. the same time they're more interested in sustainable products than mm-hmm. the uk but that doesn't mean that when I next speak to a Spanish person, and my wife is Spanish, by the way, that doesn't mean that when I next speak to them, I just suddenly assume that because they're they're from Spain and they're this client that they're gonna, you know, be low down on on in terms of their risk profile and they're going to be very interested in sustainability. So I think yeah, we have to think about culture though um, and backgrounds more so because um, exactly because of that, that reason that we should be aware that not everyone is coming in in the same so if we think about what we've been speaking about saving for the future um some of us and because of our backgrounds and um because what we know about uh, investments and things we would think it's crazy to to not want to save for tomorrow we would think that's absolutely crazy to not want to do that knowing like you said you might need three million after retirement Mm -hmm. but then someone from a different upbringing from a different family background born in a different year may think it's completely crazy to not focus and and think about spending just for today because I you know because of how I've been brought up or because of the way my parents view the banks or the governments and their relationship mm. with money and so which yes is can be at a cultural level but also at an individual or family level and mm-hmm. so I think the reason why that's important um when you said about advisors adapting mm-hmm. i think they need to be very mindful of that that you know if someone is a male versus female or certain background um yes there might be certain um uh, ways and they're more likely to behave or more likely that we see from research that they have behaved in the past but that i should still get to know that individual mm. um and it's quite interesting actually some colleagues of mine thinking about kind of gender as well as similar to culture i guess is they they found that when males and females a couple completed the attitude to risk questionnaire Mm -hmm. that the advisor the overall risk profile that they 
they went with and that they selected, um, because you can complete the questionnaire separately as a as a husband and wife, that yeah. they all, that they tend to significantly gravitate to the profile more related to the man than, than yeah. the woman. And I so just things like this. Uh, should demonstrate to advisors that there are ways that we they need to adapt how they approach the conversation around um, risk around um, your investments, how they should think about each individual um, and their own yeah background, their own perceptions of money. Um, yeah. And as I mentioned earlier as well, certain ethnic minorities have lower levels of financial literacy, financial knowledge, Mm-hmm. financial self-efficacy in general so mm-hmm. again they're going to maybe be less inclined to even come to you and so when they do come to you you need to be able to you know adapt and, and build that trust as as we mentioned um mm-hmm. yeah it, it's, it's it's difficult it's complex because everyone is different and everyone's had a different upbringing but that's why they we need to have these conversations with clients and not just put everyone through the same uh you know process and assume that they're going to be exactly the same as someone i saw yesterday yeah, yeah, because I think, you know, different cultural backgrounds can have um, different ways to deal with money, where, whether it's, and also uh, the amount of people that they have to think about when they're spending their money. Um, if I think yeah. of like my yeah. father, for example, when he mm-hmm. was raising his own family, he also still had to think about his younger siblings as well yes. and helping yeah. his parents and mm-hmm. Also, I can imagine if he'd gone to an advisor and be like, yeah, there's for me, I'm thinking about my retirement and my kids, but also there's, you know, nine other people Mm. (laughs) that I need to think about um, as well. And it's it's so layered and so interesting. It's actually very interesting. Yeah, even some cultures even thinking about their parents um, as part of their own plans yeah. when, you know, when they retire and having them, you know, live with them or, or taking mm-hmm. care of them. So there's, yeah, it's very important um, that, yeah, advisors are aware that they need to understand all of the different dynamics that that can take place um, in each family. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And finally, because yeah. I've had a great time talking about this, I love to, you know, pick your brain about the brain. Um, but um, what advice would you give to financial advisors who want to continue learning about behavioral insights? Yeah. So, yeah, obviously, there's lots of books out there. Um, so some, well, one in, uh, very good book great book actually uh, the psychology of money by morgan housel i think is yeah really really useful uh, mm-hmm. and really easy to read um and but one thing that i think is also could be also interesting for advisors to look at more of the um academic work that's out there some of the experiments and, mm-hmm. and see ways which they can apply like i mentioned earlier things into their practice or things into the software or or, or whatever they're creating um then yeah if, if we're thinking about learning about kind of their own clients, I think there are easy ways where they could, you know, create um, questionnaires or, or ways where their clients could give them feedback about what they're doing. Can They can gather data and, and be able to use that data to then maybe improve, um, you know, their processes or improve how, how they, yeah, build relationships with clients or how their clients feel uh, about the reports they're using or, or anything like that. Um, and yeah, as I mentioned earlier, probably w- one of the best ways is to th- think that about ourselves as ad- advisors and think mm-hmm. about our own biases and probably our mm-hmm. own um, our emotional intelligence and how we need mm-hmm. to maybe work on that and be able to 
reflect, take time to reflect, make sure we're listening and and, and thinking about nonverbal and verbal cues when we're having conversations with clients. And I think these are things advisors could do right now. There's no need to build a, a questionnaire or run an experiment. You can do that right now and 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 um start, yeah, improving the way the way that you, you interact with clients. Yeah. Well, I really, really enjoyed this conversation, Louis. Thank you for taking the time out of your day to talk to me. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to In Conversation With. We do hope that you enjoyed it. Please do keep up to date with all our new releases via Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else you get your podcasts from. You can also keep up to date with all our new content published on the Money Marketing website, as well as our print edition, Money Marketing Magazine. So make sure to subscribe. Follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram. See you next time.